Welcome to the Bible for My Ordinary Life podcast. My name is Alicia Parker, and I'll be your host. Now, I live a pretty ordinary life, but I really enjoy studying and teaching the Bible. If you're interested in what the Bible really means and how it can be applied to your everyday, perhaps ordinary life, then this podcast is for you. You see, I believe the Bible is more than just a collection of interesting stories. It's God's communication to humankind. It's a revelation about who he is and how we fit into the story he is telling. Even if we feel like our personal story is a little bit ordinary. The Bible includes 66 individual books, but with a unifying theme, God desires a relationship with us. So let's open the pages of God's Word together and discover what extraordinary truths He has for our lives. Hey everyone, I'm so glad you're joining me this week. We are getting further into this letter to the Ephesians and uncovering more and more truths of God's Word. Today, we're going to talk about the next couple of verses in Ephesians and use some composition clues to help us better understand Paul's intentions behind these words. We'll get into the cause and effect of salvation and explore another contrast Paul makes between who we were and who we are now. Lots of interesting and practical stuff for us today, so I hope you're ready with an open heart and mind for what God has for us. Now, the last time we were together, we used the composition clue of compare and contrast to understand Paul's point about who we were before salvation and who we are after salvation. We read verses 8 through 10, but we didn't have the time to really unpack them. So today, we're going to start there. I'm reading from the Net 2 version, which I get from Bible.org. For by grace you are saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. It is not from works, so that no one can boast. For we are his creative work, having been created in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared beforehand so we can do them. Now verses 8, 9, and 10 are verses I memorized as a little kid going to my church's Bible club. The Bible club was called Awana, and if you grew up in an American church in the 80s and 90s, you're probably pretty familiar with this. It's still around today in many churches. So every week we'd meet and play games, do a craft, have a Bible lesson, sing songs, and work on memorizing scriptures. And you'd get this book that was on par for your grade level, And you could earn awards for progressing through the book by memorizing the verses. As a natural learner and lover of achievement, I was very motivated by this program and memorized a lot of scripture. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 are verses found in the upper elementary books used in Awana. They're chosen as part of that curriculum because they are foundational to our faith. We are saved by grace alone. That's what these verses communicate. No works caused us to be worthy of salvation. It's after salvation that we were then supposed to produce good works, but not because we're trying to maintain or continuously earn our salvation. So let's look at these verses really carefully. And here we'll find another situation where Paul uses contrast to teach. We used this composition clue in our last episode, and it shows up again here. And remember, composition clues are little things that I like to highlight in the scriptures that help us to unpack it. So sometimes it's keywords and phrases, or it could be punctuation. It's just things we're looking for to help us see the meaning and how the author is constructing their communication. 
Last week, we looked at the word but, as in but God, which transitioned us from life before to life after God intervened. It set up a contrast. And here we see another small word. It's the word not. Verse 8 clearly says we are saved by faith. It is a gift from God. This declares what salvation is, a gift. The second part of verse 8 then declares what it is not. It is not from ourselves. And verse 9 continues with what it is not. It is not from works. Paul is very clearly establishing that salvation is only possible because of God. And there is nothing we did to earn or merit salvation. We can take no credit in this. Now, we come to a key phrase we've seen before. Paul says, it is not from works so that no one can boast. So that is a phrase that always clues us into a cause and effect, which is a reason for why something happened. Salvation is caused by God alone, and the effect of this is that no one can boast they had anything to do with it. Now, maybe you've never believed in the lie that you had to earn your salvation. So maybe God's grace and the fact that it was a gift was easy for you to understand. But you may have been tempted to believe the lie that you are not worthy of salvation. That you haven't done the right things or lived the right way or said the right things and God couldn't possibly save someone like you. It's a lie that says you aren't good enough, but it's kind of the same idea as trying to earn it. Please look closely at these verses. You have nothing to do with salvation. It's a free gift. You couldn't earn it if you tried. So you can't possibly take the position that you aren't good enough. None of us are. It's not about being worthy enough for it. It's about being willing enough to accept it. If you believe you aren't worthy enough, it's kind of the same thing as saying God is unable to love you enough. And that is a straight up lie. For by grace you are saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. It is not from works so that no one can boast. Okay, so let's dive deeper into verse 10 now. Verse 10 says, For we are his creative work, having been created in Christ Jesus for good works, that God prepared beforehand so we can do them. Now the works come in. But notice the works are after salvation. We are first God's creative work in Christ Jesus for good works. Now, it's kind of cool to note that the Greek word used here that's translated creative work is this word poeme, which is a word we derive the English word poem from. As believers, we are a new creation. We are like a unique poem written by God, a work of art. Paul tells the church in Corinth the same thing in a letter we call 2 Corinthians. It's chapter 5, verse 17, which says, So then, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. What is old has passed away. Look, what is new has come. And in our new state, our purpose is to do the good works God has prepared for us to do. Now, at this point, 
I want to take a slight detour just to make sure we drive home this point. Works are not the cause of salvation. They are the effect of salvation. James says this in his letter to the Jews. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but does not have works? Can this kind of faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, keep warm, and eat well. But you do not give them what the body needs. What good is it? So also faith, if it does not have works, is dead being by itself. Now, did you hear his question about faith without works? He asked what good it was. It's not any good. Faith is first. It is the cause. Good works are the effect. In these verses, James gave an example of someone who is in need. And the believer says, well, have faith and good luck, instead of meeting that need. Okay, let's look at another passage about doing good works. Titus 2.14 says, He gave himself for us to set us free from every kind of lawlessness and to purify for himself a people who are truly his, who are eager to do good. A people who are truly his, who are eager to do good. Salvation is first. Works are the effect. So we should be doing good works because we are saved. But there's a common pitfall here. So often when we do good works, we want them to be noticed. And we want people to praise us or at least compliment us. It might not be easy to admit this, but I think this is pretty common to most humans. There's this homeless camp behind a grocery store that we usually get our groceries from. On more than one occasion, we have purposely purchased a lunch and given it to one of the homeless standing behind the store holding a hungry sign. Every single time they've been grateful and have thanked us or even said, God bless you. We always pull away feeling good about our good works. But what if I handed a free lunch to a homeless person and they cursed at me for not understanding their plight? What if they told me that my effort was just a way to assuage my guilt at seeing them and that one free lunch didn't really solve their problems? It was just a temporary fix for them and I could go on with my merry way feeling really good and go to my nice comfy house and forget about them. I wonder how that response might make me feel. No, that's not actually ever happened to me. But I read a book once that challenged me to think about my, quote, savior complex when I do good works. Do my good works make me prideful? If so, I need to repent of that. God didn't save us so that we could do good works to boost our ego. He didn't ask us to do good things so we would feel so much better about ourselves and pat ourselves on the back and get noticed and thanked. Salvation and the effect of salvation are 100% for God's glory. So if someone spits in our face, literally or figuratively, when we do something good, it should have no bearing on our obedience to continue to do good works. These are the effect of our salvation, no matter how they're received by other humans. Think about this. If their response, and it's a negative response, impacts our continued obedience in a negative way, then the cause of our good works is probably how it makes us feel, not our salvation. Now, it's okay to feel good about doing good works. I don't mean to say we can't feel good about it, but 
that should not be the cause and effect relationship. Okay, detour over. Let's return to our main path and our discussion of Ephesians. We are saved by grace. We can take no credit. We are God's workmanship, like a beautifully written poem, a work of art. Because of our salvation, we are to live our lives doing good works. We are to serve others, meet needs, and love all people. It sounds simpler than it is in reality, but that is the mission of our lives. Now, let's look at what Paul says next. I'm picking back up in verse 11. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision that is performed on the body by human hands, that you were at that time without the Messiah, alienated from the citizenship of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who used to be far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Now, I always love when a verse starts with the word therefore. In the version that I read, verse 11 says, therefore, remember that. I had a pastor who would always stop and say, Whenever you see the word therefore, ask yourself what it is there for. I know, it's corny, but I have a lot of fond memories of chuckling over that in church. Other translations use so then or wherefore. And these are other clue words, composition clues. Again, this is used to give us pause. The word therefore is going to link what we've just finished reading to what we are about to read. It's like a bridge between two ideas. Paul has established that salvation is by grace alone and then says, therefore, you were Gentiles in the flesh. And he rattles off a series of five descriptors of their former state. Now let's keep in mind, we're reading someone else's mail, right? This was a letter that first went to a church located in Ephesus and then was passed around to some other first century churches. Many of these people were converts from their other religions. They hadn't grown up Jewish or waiting for the Messiah and studying the Old Testament, but at some point they'd probably joined Judaism or they'd heard the good news of Jesus and had become Jesus' followers after Christ's resurrection. So Paul says they were Gentiles in the flesh because in those days there were two types of people in the minds of Jews. You were either a Jew or you were a Gentile. You could be a Gentile who converted to Judaism. But then you got labeled, and that label was not to be a Jew. So Paul says they were Gentiles in the flesh. And then my Bible has a dash. Remember our composition clue of punctuation? A dash means the writer is about to further elaborate on what was just said. So they weren't just Gentiles in the flesh. They were called, quote, the uncircumcised. And there are literally quotes around the words the uncircumcised in my Bible. I feel like if Paul had delivered this as a speech, he would have used air quotes here. You see, there was this discrimination on the part of Jews that was like, you can worship our God, but you won't ever really be one of us. So Paul is calling on them to remember this. And he's going to now list four more things that describe them. Once again, we're using the composition clue of punctuation. We're going to have commas separating things in a list, and it helps us realize one, that this is a list, and that it's a specific technique Paul is using to draw out what he wants his readers to remember. This will ultimately lead up to a contrast, but I don't want to get ahead of myself. Let's look at the five things. 
We established at first, Paul says they are Gentiles and the uncircumcised. So that's the first thing. Second thing, he says they were at that time without the Messiah. Third, they were alienated from the citizenship of Israel. Fourth, strangers to the covenants of promise. And fifth, without God and without hope. Let's pause here just a moment. If you aren't familiar with this reference Paul is making, it goes way back to Genesis where God makes a covenant with Abraham. In Genesis 17, God says this to Abraham, I am the sovereign God. Walk before me and be blameless. Then I will confirm my covenant between me and you, and I will give you a multitude of descendants. He goes on and promises him that his multitude of descendants and the covenant will last for many generations. He promises him a fruitful and wonderful land to live in. And then he says, As for you, you must keep the covenantal requirements I am imposing on you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my requirement that you and your descendants after you must keep. Every male among you must be circumcised. You must circumcise the flesh of your foreskins. This will be a reminder of the covenant between me and you. Throughout your generations, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised, whether born in your house or bought with money from any foreigner who is not one of your descendants. And they must be indeed circumcised, whether born in your house or bought with money. The sign of my covenant will be visible on your flesh as a permanent Reminder, any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin will be cut off from his people. He has failed to carry out my requirement. So this is the backstory to what we're reading in Ephesians. Paul is saying, hey, don't forget, you are a Gentile, not one of us, not part of this covenant. And even if you worshiped our God, we called you, air quote, the uncircumcised. In those days, a convert could, and as we read, was supposed to be circumcised, but that still didn't make them fully Jewish in the eyes of natural-born Jews. They were still considered outsiders, and there was quite a bit of discrimination. So now we get to the contrast. Just like in our last episode, we saw the contrast in the first few verses of chapter 2 signaled by the words, but God, We will see again the phrase, but now. Let's start in verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who used to be far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he is our peace, the one who made both groups into one and who destroyed the middle wall of partition, the hostility. Now I'm going to stop there, even though the sentence continues on, because I want us to land on this today but now in Christ Jesus. It sounds a lot like, but God, who is rich in mercy and love, doesn't it? And that was the key phrase in last week's episode that transitioned us from what we were to what we now are. Once again, God's intervention changes our trajectory. I am not of Jewish descent, so I identify very much with the recipients of this letter. Technically, I'm a Gentile. I was once lost cut off from the promises, alienated from God and without hope. But now in Christ Jesus, I, who used to be far, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. 
Do you see how this links back to the first part of today? Not by works, not by worthiness, not by anything I have done. The only reason these letter readers and you and I today have a hope in the world is because of the blood of Jesus. The grace, mercy, and love of God. And then verse 14 will start us off on a topic we will continue next time. For he is our peace. The one who made both groups into one and destroyed the middle partition of hostility. That contrast Paul just described, the difference between the Gentiles and the Jews, the in crowd and the out crowd, it's gone. All believers are now one. We all have the benefits of being sons and daughters of God. Now, we're not growing up in a culture right now of extreme division between Jews and non-Jews. But I bet you can think of some division among Christians today. So tuck that in your mind for our next episode as we begin to dive deeper into Paul's call for unity. He has a lot more to say on this topic, but we're nearly out of time. So we're going to stop here for today and let a few truths really sink in. Salvation is first. Good works are the result. Good works are prepared for us by God. They are not for our glory. They are for the benefit of others. Everyone who is in God's family has equal status. There are no divisions, no special privileges. So this week, let's pay attention to the effects of our salvation. As we go about our ordinary tasks in life, are we living out the good works prepared for us? Are we doing it for our glory or for his? Are we living at peace with all our brothers and sisters in Christ? And if not, what can we do to pull down the walls of division that are out there? Christ has already removed the spiritual ones. We'll dive deeper into this in the coming weeks, but I hope today leaves you feeling encouraged and inspired. And this week, as you read God's word, look for those composition clues. Unpack the meaning that God intends to communicate. And join me next time as we continue to look to the Bible for our ordinary lives. Thank you so very much for taking the time to listen to today's episode of The Bible for the Ordinary Life. My name is Alicia Parker. I hope you learned something and our time together encouraged your personal relationship with God. Be sure to check out my companion website at www.bibleforteordinarylife.com or connect with me on Instagram at Bible for the Ordinary Life.